Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. Less than 3% of the population were in towns of more than 10,000. Most immigrants lived on the land, but cities were beginning to flourish. Revolutionary Philadelphia, with its 40,000 inhabitants, was the first colonial city in size. New York was second, with 25,000. Boston, with 16,000, third. Charleston, the largest city of the South, numbered 12,000. America was growing. And in spite of all adversity, America was destined to continue its growth. Why? Possibly because America was a dream for freedom-loving people then as it is today. Welcome to episode 14 of Open Ears, Maine. It is Tuesday, May 26, 2020, a sunny and beautiful summer day in the late spring, and it's going to be hot again tomorrow and the day after, before the more seasonal temperatures return. By the way... This weekend, I saw the season's first dragonfly, at least in our little piece of the woods. It always seems to happen this way. A single outlier dragonfly appears, scouting mission, looking to see how many insects are about. And then, after the next really hot day, a whole bunch more, a veritable army of dragonflies, leave their watery home and take flight. To my eyes, it's a glorious sight to see the squadrons of dragonflies coming up from the swamp and devouring the black flies and mosquitoes. I'm your host, Crash Berry, editor-at-large for Mainer, the magazine and website at MainerNews.com. Do you enjoy true crime podcasts? If so, you should listen to Devils and Dirtbags, my 13-part investigation of the child-molesting priests of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. It's a sad and sordid tale that needed telling. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com to listen or download the show wherever you download. On today's Open Ears, Maine, we'll be talking about pandemic restauranteering with Aaron Bruns of Bruce's Burritos in Yarmouth. We'll hear what it was like to pivot to curbside-only food service and functioning under the state's new restaurant rules and her thoughts on the tough times ahead were Maine's restaurant culture. But first, the numbers. According to the Maine Center for Disease Control, there have been at least 2,013 cases connected to the coronavirus in Maine. At least 77 Mainers have died with COVID-19. And to date, 1,232 residents have recovered from the illness. Traffic on the Maine Turnpike for this past Memorial Day weekend was reportedly much slower than in recent years, though no real numbers have been disclosed. 
Anecdotally, though, there have been many reports that herds of -of out-of-state license plates have been spotted, even in my neighborhood, in the western foothills. On Sunday, I was headed downtown to get some gasoline for the mower and chainsaw. I drove past the lake in the lake houses and saw many cars from away as the summer people returned to their lakefront homes. Gotta wonder if they're going to be quarantined or practice social distancing, but from the looks of the parties down on the shore, I wouldn't bet on it. I'm starting to think this pandemic is demonstrating, vividly, that if a law is basically unenforceable or unenforced, many people will ignore it, like Rick Savage of Sunday River Brewing, whose Bethel restaurant, amazingly, is still open and, according to his Facebook page, still selling beer to go despite flouting Maine's state of emergency. Others, it's quickly becoming obvious, are finding more quote-unquote legal ways to bend the rules. I've heard from sources on the Penobscot Bay Island of Islesboro, for instance, that the local private sailing tennis and boating club called the Terratine Club of Dark Harbor, a sort of island country club for rich summer folk, is telling locals that the club doesn't intend to quarantine their out-of-state workers, claiming they've been deemed essential workers and don't have to be quarantined. These workers, servants, for all intents and purposes, do the cooking and cleaning and tending of the rich people's toys. By the way, membership in the club, reserved mostly for the uber-wealthy from New York and Philly and Boston, costs, according to island sources, at least forty grand a year. That's right, a main private club for rich people claims its hired help is essential. As you may remember from episode 10 of Open Ears Maine, when I told the tale of Mary Mallon, a.k.a. Typhoid Mary, an Irish lass and cook, who visited Islesboro in 1902, specifically to the village of Dark Harbor, where she accompanied her rich employers, the Draytons of Philadelphia. Unbeknownst to everyone, Mary was infected with a bacteria, Salmonella typhi, the source of typhoid fever. It wasn't until 1906 that Mary was determined to be an asymptomatic human carrier of typhoid. By then, though, dozens and dozens had fallen ill due to her, I guess you would say, touch. Typhoid, by the way, can't be transmitted by cooked food because the heat kills the bacteria. Typhoid Mary, it's been rumored, spread the illness through her special uncooked dessert, peach melba with fresh raspberries. Anyways, there's tension afoot today on Islesboro, which is located about three miles offshore from Lincolnville, because the islanders, like many Mainers, have a symbiotic relationship with those from away. At the same time, according to my sources, due to the fragile and scarce nature of health care on Maine islands, 
there has been a concerted effort by most islanders to try to keep COVID-19 off the island. Yet the exclusive private club apparently deems their workforce more essential than maintaining healthy relations with the natives. Coming up, Erin Bruns on the pandemic, burritos, and her system for curbside food delivery. And you will undoubtedly hear it many more times as the days go by. Now, just in case you're hazy on exactly what it means, let me give you a rough idea. It means that the cost of your clothes and food has gone up to a point where the family budget has become somewhat strained. Well, that's one of those things. And you can't be expected to increase the family income. But there are some things you can do to help. For instance, take better care of your clothes. When you come home from school, change into old clothes before you go out to play. Take care of your health, because doctors and medicines are expensive. Eat well, but don't waste. Take your full share, but eat all you take. Try not to ask mother and dad to buy you things you don't actually need. Make the best and the most of what you've got. Try to be more than usually careful of your school equipment, such as paper, pencils, and so forth. Make them last and go as far as you possibly can. Remember that all members of a family must pull together at a time like this. So do your share. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. Joining us now is Erin Bruns of Bruce's Burritos in Yarmouth, where she's been co-owning and running the place for the last 14 years. Erin, you've reopened a little more than a week ago. What changes to your restaurant have you made in order to fulfill the state's reopening checklist? Well, we really had to change up kind of our entire model. Um, We're a really small space. We have 900 square feet, including our kitchen and dining room. So we had to change it up to have fewer employees in the building at a time. We've introduced sanitation stations at various places throughout the restaurant. We're all wearing masks, even inside, (laughs) when we're working together as a group. And we've basically completely re-engineered the idea of curbside pickup for us. What I was most worried about would be that when we opened, we would have a huge crowd of people outside wanting to order their burritos and not engaging in safe social distancing and safe sanitary practices. So I set up a system where you have to make a reservation for a parking spot. When you show up in your parking spot, we call you, take your order, credit card information, and then run the food out to the person. And we either place the food in the trunk of their car or in the passenger side back seat. I felt like that was the easiest way to make sure that we could serve as many people as possible while also being as safe as possible for our entire community. I've been into your restaurant. I have some great burritos there, so I highly recommend it. And when I've been in there, I've always been impressed by what kind of a almost a well-oiled machine you have for staff. So what's that done to your food service? We're just as fast as ever, simply because we can't take as many orders as we could do face-to-face with people during normal business. And instead of, you know, I haven't fired anybody, thankfully, or needed to, we just kind of space people out a little bit more 
and we moved some kitchen stuff out to the front of the house that's closed so that they can social distance a little bit better there as well. But also my entire staff really took quarantine very seriously from the start. We closed March 13th because the very first case that was announced in Maine was announced that day, and it was the India Street Clinic. And Bruce had been there on the Wednesday attending a a naloxone, how to treat people with naloxone. And so we were concerned that there was even a slight possibility that he could have it and pass it on to people. So at that point, we decided we had to do at least two weeks off quarantine. And from there, we realized very quickly how fast your money runs out when you're not serving people every day. And about half of my staff that applied for unemployment did receive benefits. The other half inexplicably and with no explanation did not. Wow. So half of your staff has applied or your entire staff applied. How many people is that? Um, There were six people that applied. Three got benefits, three not. Do you know why they didn't Mm -hmm. get benefits? None of them could figure it out, why they weren't getting benefits. I've gotten letters from the unemployment office. But yeah, it was really kind of a crapshoot in a way. And it seemed the very first people that applied right off the bat got it quickly. And then the people that were, you know, because we were hoping we'd only be closed for two weeks, those people that waited a little longer did not receive their benefits. Ah, so they may have been around April 1st, let's say, end of March, when Mm -hmm. the, the system had been totally overwhelmed. You closing March 13th was actually a little bit earlier than most people. Yeah. Because you thought Bruce, the co-owner, was possibly exposed. Uh, Has he gotten sick at all? No, he has been absolutely fine throughout, uh, thankfully. And I took it very seriously. We've been, we had uh, friends who were traveling in the beginning of February. And that's when COVID was really kind of on my map in terms of this is coming It's only a matter of when and how hard it's going to be coming to us. So as soon as there was even the slightest chance that someone on my staff had come into contact, we had to shut down because I cannot take the chance of passing this along to other people or getting people sick. We had two staff members that I haven't let come back to work yet. They're a couple. One of them worked in a nursing home. And I wanted them to wait two weeks until after she had last worked there before I could let them come back. Although I've been paying them. That's nice that you're still paying them. How did you announce on March 13th that you were shutting down and did you give a reason why? I did not give a reason why. In terms of, I did not tell the general public that there was a possibility that Bruce had been in contact um, simply because. It was, you know, it's pretty awful, but the stigma that a restaurant that could put this out to people um, would receive really kind of scared me in terms of being able to reopen my business and get things back going. Obviously, if he had shown any symptoms whatsoever, we would have immediately advertised that and let people know Um 
so that they could also be watching for themselves. But, you know, it just seemed it was, you know, it's such a strange time and you're trying to make the right decisions constantly to benefit everyone. And it's, it's very hard to do with as much misinformation, you know, different rules for different people, different places. Um, you know, it, it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. One of the things by taking the PPP loan, which saved us, but it also enabled me, I paid all of my staff to stay home for four weeks. Under the terms of the loan, that is what you are supposed to do. You're supposed to continue to pay your people and you have eight weeks to use that money. So I told everybody, and they all agreed, some of them actually to their own detriment because when they came off unemployment, they also lost the $600 federal. And it was pretty amazing to me that they were willing to take that loss in order for us to be able to reopen. And now that we are reopened, I have to have eight full-time equivalent employees. So people that weren't full-time got paid their, you know, 15 hours a week or 30 hours a week. But all of my full-time people and salaried employees, I paid fully for them to be able to stay home. That's part of the PPP loans was that guarantee or is it a guarantee that you wouldn't have to repay that? Would that be a grant because you were able to fulfill the prerequisites of the loan? I am hoping that it becomes a grant. I just got the paperwork from my bank to fill out in order to find out whether or not it will be applied as a grant or a loan. Um, I've followed the rules very strictly, you know, no messing around at all because we were running our business with zero loans and the idea of taking on to be, you know, completely honest an $81,000 loan, especially in the face of COVID, which may get far worse before it gets any better um, was a scary idea, but it was the only way for us to be able to reopen and keep our staff paid as well as their health insurance. Um, we fully pay for three of my staff members' health insurance, as well as myself, Bruce, and our daughter, Lily. So, you know, being able to pay that bill as well was really weighing heavily on us. So you're a small business owner that pays for the health insurance of three of your staff. What are you, some sort of commie? <laughs> it, that seems pretty amazing for a small restaurant, a non-corporate restaurant, and yet you offer fully paid health insurance to, I imagine they're your full-time employees or long-term yes. employees? Yep, full-time and long-term employees. So the $81,000 um, that you got, that was to pay for all the salaries for the whole shebang plus some health coverage. Was that enough to keep you going? until you felt it was time that you could reopen? Yes, it definitely helped. And then we decided, okay, this is, this, you know, is starting to dwindle and we need to now reopen in order to have enough money to pay our staff fully once we are out of the PPP loan. When we opened last week, we opened to 50% of our normal business, which is, really fantastic right now. 
a lot of restaurants are not experience, having that same experience where they're at 20% of what they normally would do. So I'm hoping that by the time our loan our grant hopefully runs out, that we will be hopefully up to 75% of what we would normally do for business. And then we're just trying to cut costs wherever we can, although food costs are rising. So we did have to go up on our prices across the board. Something that's been really amazing is how many of our customers have been tipping and tipping very, very generously, which helps me to pay my staff even more right now so they can have a cushion of savings if something happens where we have to close down again. And you've been open for a little more than a week for the curbside, and we'll get back to the curbside delivery in a second, but that seems a lot later than uh, many main restaurants uh, who seem to kind of pivot fairly quickly to uh, curbside much faster than you did. It was really because it took me a while to figure out how to do it properly and safely. For me personally, you know, going out and seeing people not wearing masks, not, um, you know, being respectful of other people made me very, very cautious about a lot of places, what they're doing is they put the food out on a table and then you go up and grab the food and take it back to your vehicle. Then in my mind, that table needs to be sanitized between every single person. You know, that's how seriously we've been taking it. And I also, because I know the kind of volume that we do and our customer base, I didn't want us to be so overwhelmed that our service and our food suffered for it. And with this reservation system, which a lot of people, I mean, some people are calling it malarkey, you know, can't believe that they have to kind of go out of their way. But one night when I was just thinking about how can I do this and not overwhelm the parking lot, have a long line of people, I thought, well, you know, I've made reservations to eat out at restaurants for years. And there's no reason why we can't do reservations for the parking lot. And then we can do the entire transaction, one phone call instead of multiples, which most places you have to do, and um, keep people in their vehicle. For people that don't know, you're actually in a strip mall. uh, So there's plenty of parking. And you've assigned, what, uh, 10 parking spaces? Yep. Do they make a reservation online? Yep. Okay, so they make the reservation online, they show up at 5 o'clock, and then they call in or you call them. What happens? We call them. So when they make their reservation, they put in their phone number and their car type and color. And so we have a spotter watching our spot. And as soon as that car pulls into their spot and their park, I call them and take their order, credit card information. And generally, the guys have had the food, or the folks have had the food out to their car before I'm completely done with the credit card transaction because we're so fast. So this is a very hands-free, no-touch system you've got in place. How's it working out so far? It has been amazing. We are doing 16 reservations an hour currently. 
I'm going to be bumping that up this week. I got a new Bluetooth headset to wear in the restaurant. So my neck doesn't hurt so bad at the end of the day. And the reviews on the app that we're using have been extraordinary. Just five stars. Thank you. This was safe. It was fast. I've had, I I don't want to tear up, (laughs) but, you know, a lot of really regular customers that I've been worried about, um, particularly the elderly folks, this is the first place that they have eaten since March 15th. This is the first takeout they've had. Um, They haven't felt very safe going out. I also had a wonderful customer who right before we closed, um, let me know that her liver cancer had progressed and they were going to try a new treatment. She's just been on my mind and I've been thinking about her ever since. And then I got to see her this week and the treatment's going really well and she's doing way better than expected. So that made, you know, stuff like that is really, it just helps so much. I care about all of my customers there and my staff, you know, they're, these are people that I've fed for 14 years, a lot of them. So it's been so amazing to be able to get back and talk, even though I don't get to see most of them, I get to talk to them on the phone, you know, check in on how everything's going with them and get to feed them some of their favorite food again. It means a lot. That was one of my much later questions I was going to have for you about uh, your many, 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 many regulars, because I know that you're tight with them because they've been getting burritos from you for years. But are you hearing other things? Are you hearing tales of woe, tales of poverty or of death or of fear? I have not heard any tales of death. I have definitely heard some people who are scared. And I haven't yet had anyone who doesn't have the money to afford burritos out for lunch. One of my regular customers who's very dear to my heart, she's a cellist in the Portland Symphony Orchestra, and obviously they won't be playing. So ours was the first takeout she's had since the lockdown. And she said, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing this because I need to budget, but I need this today. This is, you know, I've missed you guys so much. And I'm, I'm very concerned that as we go along, I will hear more and more of that. I really wish that from the start, we had kind of gotten it together as a country, even though that's very much impossible at this point with who is in charge. People need universal basic income of at least $2,000 a month to make it through this. And without that, we are going to just see more deaths, more deaths of despair, more deaths from the illness as people are forced to work sick. It's very unfortunate. It's strange that the universal basic income prior to COVID-19 was really a fringe idea that was often mocked and often, I think, mocked with the intent of saying, oh, look, that's for the lazy bums. But as we're seeing with this, it's like, right across the spectrum that all sorts of jobs and income levels are impacted. And as I think you said in the beginning, food costs are going up. So they're going up in the grocery store, as everyone's noticed. You said food costs for the restaurant have gone up and you've increased your prices. Is there a, a percentage that you increased by or was it like per item? Right now, I just did a dollar across the board. 
So, you know, our basic burrito used to be 825, now it's 925. And that's just preliminary. Our salespeople are telling us that costs are going to jump from 15 to possibly 30% higher than they used to be. So I had to go back in raising prices, which has always been one of the hardest things for me to do (laughs) because I really do enjoy feeding people that much. The other point to universal basic income is that almost every single member of my staff who I was paying to stay home was like, I really just want to get back to work. So, you know, they were sitting home and getting free money, which is what people always think, you know, oh, if you give people $1,200 a month, they won't want to work. They won't want to. It's like, no, people still need a purpose. People still want to work. Giving people a universal basic income just allows there to be more parity in life. And it would help so many people right now who are going to be homeless, who are going to be hungry. If it was important before, it is incredibly important at this point. It's very scary thinking about the future because it's, it's pretty stressful right now. But the long-term impacts, people being evicted from their apartments or, or their houses, uh, mm-hmm. not being able to make mortgage payments. I mean, that's something we've never seen on a grand scale in America. And for the worker class, that's pretty frightening. Absolutely. Back to the food and your your portions and which I always I always I'm never able to finish an entire burrito when I get one there. <laughs> there's always a little bit extra. So your your prices are pretty reasonable. I mean you're you're not an expensive restaurant. It's not a big restaurant. It's that you you make your money because of the turnover and because of your already thriving to go business. Yep. I know that you know a lot of people in the restaurant industry because you've been in the industry for a long time. This pandemic has showed our adaptability. We saw some changes in main rules right away, such as the ability to for restaurants and bars to sell drinks to go. If I'm mm-hmm. remembering correctly, you guys don't sell booze, right? No booze. What have you heard from your comrades in the industry, uh, how they're faring? Everybody's trying to figure out on the fly how to do things the best. You know, I've watched places reopen and then have to close because of being too overwhelmed. A lot of places have had to shorten their hours. I'm guessing because they can't afford the employees that they had before, so they don't have enough workers. I think everybody's just trying to figure out how to do it the best. It's a real different story out there, in particular for servers and bartenders. If you're a bartender and you're just selling cocktails to go, you're never going to see the level of tips that you made previously. You don't have table service per se, that there's not much tipping, right? Uh, Or is there? Before Uh, the pandemic, were people tipping? Some people did. It wasn't a super huge thing. You know, it would probably, on a busy day, we split tips between everybody on staff, excluding myself and Bruce because we're owners. So people would walk with anywhere from like 15 to $25 which is, you know, just some cash to get gas, you know, get some smokes, pick up some beer, whatever. But it was very nice. It's not like the servers that depend solely on tips. Well, so the, the people that have... The PP program works out. They take 
how much your employees made the previous year, you and your employees, what your payroll was. You divide that by 12, and then they give you two and a half times that amount. A lot of restaurants where you're doing a lot of cash tips, et cetera, you only have to claim so much of your tips. So on this other end of it, that means that restaurants weren't carrying as large of a payroll as they actually were, if that makes sense to you. I, I guess I understand that. I mean, maybe this is another wake-up call that it's perhaps time to shift away from tipping employees. In a perfect world, how would the industry handle paying waitstaff? And- you know, I really don't know. Before I owned a restaurant, I lived on tips as a waitress for years and years and did pretty well for most of it. I would work my last job and Bruce's last job before we bought the restaurant. Um, We both worked at the Muddy Rudder and he worked 40 hours a week as a cook and I did about 20 as a server and I would bring home $200 more a week than he was. Yikes. That just shows how much more the wait staff makes than the people actually doing the work. <laughs> yeah, but he's working hard. There's a wild discrepancy, you know, in how much. And I, I mean, a lot of cooks, some of their grumpiness can be attributed to that without a doubt. Especially in restaurants where they might hear a bartender or waiter or waitress complain about something and realizing yeah. that they're also making 30 or 40 or $50 an, an hour. Is there any chance for revolution in the restaurant industry, do you think? I think there's going to have to be. I don't think we're going to have an option. You know, all of these places are trying out these ideas with plastic between booths and staff wearing masks and gloves, but diners sitting there without. And they're all kind of trying to figure out how to make this work. But until COVID-19 has either died out because everybody actually stayed home and followed rules, or we have a vaccine, people are not going to go sit in restaurants comfortably. It's going to be a very different world out there. Yeah, that doesn't sound very appealing to me as a customer. You know, you're missing the socialness, the interaction Mm -hmm. of a, a restaurant you probably won't even be able to smell the kitchen smells as well with all that plastic around. Kind of weird to have somebody with a mask on, almost like in a laboratory. It just seems like a hard thing for people to be able to relax around. Your your server suddenly coughs and you're like worried, you know, just because of a cough, even if it's a cannabis cough as opposed to a COVID cough, let's say. <laughs> well, and you have allergies right now. Totally. I mean, there's many reasons to cough that aren't COVID-related. This is going to be devastating to the industry. Portland as a food mecca, a gazillion restaurants. Mm-hmm. Any word on the street about shutdowns, closures? What's happening there? I haven't really heard much from people that really have thrown in the towel completely yet. Everybody's still trying to fight it out and figure out their system. The rents in Portland being what they are certainly doesn't help. And I think customers aren't going to pay extra when I've gone out to eat at very expensive restaurants in Portland, which I like to do on occasion. You know, a $30 entree, not a huge deal. A $50 entree, 
that's kind of a different level. Tourism may or may not come back, hopefully not this year, maybe next year, but whether or not people will have that kind of expendable income is definitely questionable. They're going to be willing to spend $50 on an entree in a restaurant that has plastic sheets hanging from the ceiling and a kind of a, almost a death vibe to it, you know, yeah. a, a clinical vibe there. It's going to be hard. If you were looking to make an investment in a restaurant, it would be kind of a wild idea in my mind. The people that I have seen, have been seeing do well, have been food trucks. In North Yarmouth, Stone's Restaurant, um, a little breakfast spot, they closed very early in this as well. And they've allowed a food truck to park in their parking lot and put out food all day. So there's been Frenchman's Barbecue out there. And I think those places are doing better than anybody brick and mortar, just with the lower overhead and less need for as much staff. You know, just going back to this idea of restaurants closing and landlords obviously demanding rent, again, I don't want to sound um, too idealistic here, but it almost seems like there's a uh, this is a perfect time for landlords to be a little more forgiving of rent because what's the chances if they throw restaurant A out because they haven't paid during COVID that there is a restaurant B who's going to be moving into that space because it's not the time to open a restaurant? I think some landlords, my landlord, very thankfully, you know, he gave us some time to pay our rent. Didn't not have us pay, but let us take some time to figure stuff out and get it together. We have been there for a long time. But another Yarmouth restaurant that just opened this past year, the Garrison, which originally was Dandelion Catering, his landlord just last week brought somebody through to look at the building, wanting to sell the building, and then came back through and said everybody's triple net is going up. And the amount of money that Christian and his wife put into designing that restaurant, that kitchen, it's a lot of money. And it's very sad to see. He's been really trying as hard as he can to make things work. And it's kind of a slap in the face when people decide that we want to make some extra money off of you right now in the middle of a pandemic. It just seems to be another sign of what I always view as the disaster capitalist, you know, the, just it's the end of capitalism and they're trying to make as much money as they can uh, just grabbing. And also the way our society mm-hmm. is set up, that it's only the banks we're protecting. Yeah. You know, we did it in, in 2008 with the bailout. How did it go for you and your bank? You said you went through your bank for the PPP loans. How is that? It was very painless other than my anxiety. <laughs> over, you know, getting the application in, making sure I did it right. We've banked with Bath Savings for years. Ever since TD Bank North started charging people overdraft fees if their account dipped below $100, not because my account was dipping below $100, but I watched people break down and cry in the bank who didn't know this new rule. And a lot of people, they have budgeted the last penny that's in their account. 
And so after I saw a couple of people cry over that, we switched to Bath Savings. So it's our local bank. The loan officer that I dealt with, Colette, could not have been nicer. She was texting with me. We talked on the phone a couple of times. Her daughter and son-in-law are both doctors in Boston on COVID floors currently. When all of the loans were coming in, she was working 70 hours a week trying to get everything processed and trying to help as many of their customers as possible. Fast Savings and her in particular really helped make this happen for us. What's your view on uh, Rick Savage of Sunday River Brewing in Bethel and his reopening on his own terms? I was horrified. It really put me personally into kind of a spin. And even watching him on television, you know, I'm watching him kind of spouting off and the woman behind him at the bar not wearing gloves and not seeing face masks on anyone. That to me, it sends out a message. Unfortunately, right now, wearing masks has become politicized. Coronavirus has been politicized, where some people don't believe that it is true because it hasn't affected them personally yet. And the problem with different places deciding to run by different rules is that then customers have an expectation of how everyone should be running their businesses. I've definitely had a lot of people hang up the phone on me when I've explained our curbside pickup system. Bruce had a guy on our very first day, he tried to come into the restaurant to order food. And when Bruce said no, the guy screamed, you know, fuck you and gave him a finger, uh, which Bruce returned. <laughs> uh, thankfully, the guy stopped off. But Bruce is getting, you know, he's kind of been out in the parking lot during service, just making sure everything's okay. And the number of older people that have yelled at him and given him the finger has been pretty wild to see, uh, particularly since a lot of this we're doing in order to keep them as safe as possible. It's been pretty wild. And I think in our own strip mall, Romeo's, they have a different set of rules than we do. You know, customers are still allowed to walk in there. They also have a lot more space. And everybody's kind of doing things the, the best that they consider. For me personally, I'm terrified of getting coronavirus. And I need it to be as safe as possible if I'm going to be able to work. <laughs> and for you to work means run a business that keeps eight people employed. Uh, you know, Bruce yeah. getting the finger and being yelled at. There's so many problems with our society. But the thing that's really bothering me the most is when I'm seeing videos of people coughing intentionally in the faces of workers, it is just so disturbing to me to see how just nasty and dirty and mean and wacky and crazy our fellow citizens are. I mean, I'm angry about a lot of stuff, but when I see a worker get grief like that, it, it makes me just so angry. Oh, uh, me too. Right now, one of my employees, Krista, you know, she's been doing the delivery out to the cars. And when you're out there, 
cars that don't have reservations are asking you, what's the deal? What's going on? Um, we have cards that we hand to them so that they can follow the instructions for next time. Um, if they're really nice, we'll take their phone number and call them from inside and take their order right then. If they're not, then no dice. Um, and the other day, you know, she had a woman get very, an elderly woman again, get very, very upset with her. And I just said, you know, you can just turn around and walk away. You come right back in this restaurant. You do not have to take abuse from anyone ever. We also have a bell that we put in because if I see something going on outside and I'm on the phone taking an order and, you know, the guys are listening to music and I need people to pay attention to me, then I ring that bell and everybody stops and we figure out what's going on because I'm not taking any chances. One of my staff, you know, she was afraid to come back to work and I let her take an additional paid week from when everybody else was working because of those incidences that we're seeing of people being accosted, of fellow human beings not realizing that we should all be in this together. Viruses don't care if you're red or blue, if you're rich or poor, a virus is a virus. And so many of these people just don't seem to understand that. And I think it is truly right from the president and his misinformation from the start that has caused a lot of this. Let's hope you don't have to call the cops. I wouldn't hesitate if I was in your position. I've already reached out to Dan Gallant, who is our chief of police in Yarmouth, and let him know that we had reopened and that we'd already had a, a little bit of parking lot issues. And they're sending extra, you know, the guys through a couple extra times a day, just driving through, keeping their eyes open which is very helpful. We've always had a great relationship with them. There have definitely been some awful horror stories already, but how happy it has made me to be able to feed people again and how happy we've been able to make so many of these people has really outweighed the bad for me almost entirely. So many people so excited to hear my voice and I'm so excited to hear theirs. It's been really gratifying in that way. What signs or messages from the government will make it so that you feel comfortable going out and eating in restaurants again? We're going to need more testing and contact tracing. Until we have that, because of the asymptomatic nature of this disease, it just won't be safe. People need to realize that your server, who seems perfectly well and chipper, could be shedding virus asymptomatically. It's my biggest fear. And I wish that I had the ability to have all of my employees tested on a regular basis, like every two weeks. It would make us all feel a lot safer. I think we're watching places reopen too quickly. I think a lot of people are giving in to the pressures of what the economy demands versus what humanity needs. And I think, unfortunately, we will end up learning the hard way how not safe it is. Ladies, there's still a shortage of fats to make soap. So save and sell every pound of used kitchen fats. And remember, you get more money for used fat today. So keep saving it and keep selling it. 
Waste fat makes soap. So don't waste waste fat. Fill a tin and turn it in. Thanks to Erin Bruns of Bruce's Burritos in Yarmouth for her insight and an informative look at what it's like to be working in food service during a pandemic. Do you have a pandemic story you want to share? Drop me a line, crash at crashberry.com. Until we meet again, thanks for listening. Thank you.